listening to Flux Pod. My name is Matthew Perpetua. This episode features Jesse Hawken of the podcast Junk Filter. And uh, I recently appeared on Junk Filter to talk about Steely Dan. And this episode is kind of a sequel to that. We called the first one Dan Pilled, and this one is Dan Pilled 2. Uh, this one goes a bit deeper into songs, whereas the first Dan Pilled was more like broadly talking about Steely Dan and who they are and how people react to them and what they mean all of that. So, you know, I do recommend listening to that one first. You can check out uh, Jesse's podcast, Junk Filter. You could, I, I recommend subscribing. But uh, a little bit less effort. The episode is also in this feed. Uh, so you can check that out. Um, just a reminder that this is a free episode of FluxPod. The episodes that come out on Saturday are for Patreon subscribers. If you want all the episodes, you want to hit up patreon.com slash fluxblog and also uh if you like the show you like this episode tell people about it i have no you know (laughs) there's no big money behind me this is an independent operation uh so yeah this word of mouth matters a lot you know it's, it's hard to find independent stuff on like the big podcast companies now you're you know, it's all the, the corporate stuff or, you know, maybe the, the few of the independent ones that just got real lucky or they're real early. But uh, yeah, as word of mouth, really important. I really appreciate it. Subscribing also very helpful. Lots of good episodes for you to hear. But anyway, let's get to it. Dan Pilled part two. Jesse Hawkins. Jesse, tell the audience who you are and what you do. Well, I'm I'm a writer and a filmmaker who lives in Toronto. And for the last year or so, because of the pandemic, uh, I wasn't really doing all that much. Um, and one of the things that was keeping me sane during the lockdowns and during the you know nonstop fear brigade was listening to podcasts and learning. Uh, from them and and thinking that I can do this too. And in November, I launched Junk Filter, which is a podcast that's designed to put the spotlight on film and music that should be talked about more that isn't being talked about as much and finding interesting guests from the world of Twitter for the most part to uh, invite them on the show. Because we're trapped in our respective countries, it sort of feel, felt to me like an opportunity to get to talk to people that I would definitely see if I were visiting the cities that they lived in. I was thinking about it that way. And I was on your show and we talked about Steely Dan. And we are about to do a sequel to that conversation. Like the, the your gold teeth two of conversations. Yeah, that was what I was calling it. it the, the Steely Dan only have one sequel, which is your gold teeth two, which is a in name only for the most part. It doesn't share a lot of uh, major similarity between the first your gold teeth, which was on Countdown to Ecstasy. Yeah, I mean, not many artists have sequels to their songs. But this is also what we were talking about on my show was the cinematic connections that I've always appreciated about Steely Dan, not only the words, not only the lyrics of their songs, which are sometimes written out almost like um, camera directions and things like that. But um, the stories that they tell, we were talking about when we were on the show together, we were talking about um, how the songs are kind of like mini movies and 
meet where, where there's not necessarily enough meat on the bone of any one song to make a whole feature film about it. But after we recorded, I realized that what it really is, is it's not so much that they're mini movies, but the songs that they do sometimes are like scenes, memorable scenes from a movie. Hmm. I think we'll, you know, we had a bunch of songs that we just didn't get to in that first conversation. The idea in this one is we're just going to get through a bunch of others and just kind of have just kind of jump off from those songs and see where we land. And the first song we should talk about is one we both agreed pretty much immediately after having that episode published. It's like, oh, fuck, we did not talk about Showbiz Kids. And showbiz kids kind of directly relates to the cinema thing. Very much so. But yeah, that song is very prescient and particularly the line show business kids making movies of themselves. You know, they don't give a fuck about anyone else. That's the, uh, the bridge of that song. I love that song because um, it kind of describes, it was written in 1973 or something, but it kind of describes modern sort of vice era, Instagram era, um, you know, documentation of your own partying lifestyle while the poor people are sleeping with the shade on the light. Yeah, I mean, it's. I think it's like you can kind of find different versions of it through the past, you know, 20 years or so. I think in, in different iterations, so like now it would be people on TikTok or um, what is that? The, the Jake Paul and people like that. They're absolutely show business kids making movies of themselves. Um, but, you know, the idea of making a movie of yourself is an extremely novel idea in the early 70s that is now just kind of a daily, you know, option for anyone who has a phone. That's a song where they reference themselves too. They're, they're, they got the Steely Dan t-shirts. Yeah, every time. I mean, I, I, I own a couple Steely Dan t-shirts. And every time I put one on, I'm like, Steely Dan t-shirt. And for the coup de gras, they're outrageous. Can I tell you something funny? Uh, I always thought that that song had one of my favorite lyrics of all time. But it turned out that I had misheard the lyric. It has that great, oh, is it that the, great the chorus diss. part? No, there's this great diss where the, where he says, "Well, I've been around the world and I've been to Washington too." That's what I thought he said, <laughs> but I've been to the Washington Zoo. But I just love the diss of uh, going around the world and Washington. <laughs> I'm a very big fan of Showbiz Kids. That's certainly a top tier Steely Dan song for me, especially in the in the first part of their career. Um, and I mean, I really love the, I love that the, the way the chorus is, 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 I thought you were going to mention the chorus, which has that part that is meant to be misheard. That's deliberately written to be misheard where it sounds, where it sounds like a, you go to Las Vegas, but they, they're actually saying you're going to lost wages. Yeah. 
and that was meant to be like a Lenny Bruce kind of joke. Yeah, wasn't didn't according did, to them. I think yeah, Lenny Bruce called it lost wages apparently. Although that that might be apocryphal, but it's associated with Bruce. I mean, great guitar parts in that song. That's uh, Jeff Skunk Baxter, who would eventually become. What do you mean? You make missiles or something? What, something like the that. The story of Jeff Skunk Baxter is very funny because he was their guitar player, I guess, on the first three Steely Dan records. But he started to realize when they were touring for Pretzel Logic that Steely Dan was starting to not. They, Fagan and Becker hated touring. And they, re, I think the Pretzel Logic tour was the one where they really decided that it's time for us to become a studio group. And Baxter saw the writing on the wall a little bit. Like he's actually not even on Katie Lied. I don't even remember whether he ever comes in again as a session musician. So to make matters more confusing, Baxter went off and joined the Doobie Brothers. And Michael McDonald kind of then started working a lot with Steely Dan. Yes, the secret weapon of Michael McDonald. So um, Baxter got more and more into the um, technological aspect of sound recording, which led him to uh, start to become interested in uh, becoming a defense contractor. He started becoming interested in technology. We do happen to know what the lo- what, what the <laughs> what the, what is the thread connecting audio technology and defense. Like, is is there a logical path between those two things? Or is it just kind of like he just got into tech stuff and then one thing led to another and eventually? Well, he had a sort of vaguely questionable quote that was that I don't have right in front of me, but he said something along the lines of uh, that technology can be used for different purposes than it was designed for. For instance, turntables were supposed to be things that you play a record on, but hip hop musicians discovered how to turn the turntable into a musical instrument. And he thought that that same kind of approach goes towards uh, military technology as it's used by terrorists. Now, I don't know whether he meant to uh, draw a connection between hip hop and terrorism, which it sort of read to me. (laughs) (laughs) But But, yeah, but yeah, Jeff skunk works Baxter. (laughs) I was joking with you that it was the Doobie Brothers to Raytheon pipeline. It's famous. You know, it's it's the it, out of all of the classic rock bands, the surest path into, <laughs> to, uh, you know, if you're going to work at Lockheed Martin, eventually you, you got to move through Steely Dan, then through Doobie Brothers. But in the 90s and in the 2000s in in Republican administrations, Baxter did get some consulting work in terms of. Um, the defense world like he was in on committees and things like that as an invited guest and things like that but the other thing about baxter is that he maintains a musical career to a certain extent and that sort of zombie beach boys that goes around touring that's really just mike love and bruce johnson and a bunch of hired hands he's often one of those guys <laughs> of course man i i would love to know what Donald and you know Walter before he died think of all that they cannot be thrilled to have any connection to that no <laughs> uh but back to showbiz kids uh I, I think it's a song that really kind of plays on on class in an interesting way um 
I mean, even just being aware of it, of that being like a, a central tension in the song of these of these rich kids who just don't give a fuck about, you know, just people who are just doing like menial jobs, uh, people who, you know, are just cleaning up their messes. I always love what I always loved about that song was the idea of um, how the the chorus always has the poor people sleeping with the shade on the light. This, a lot of Steely Dan songs are from the perspective of somebody in the room watching everyone have a good time and being annoyed by them. And Showbiz Kids really reeks of that for me, how it keeps going back and forth between the partying of the actual Showbiz Kids and the perspective of those on the outside looking in, the people who are in a different place watching these right. people having fun, even though the world is not fun for them. I think a lot of their songs, you know, the person who is like, you know, getting smashed, who's who's having like this kind of wild experience, they're usually the loser that is, you know, they're interested in. But this one is very much the opposite, where it is just some poor schmuck who is you know, like who's one of us, you know, while while these kids get to have their fun. And like they are like not seen as cool at all. Uh, let's let's switch gears to a song about kind of a, a loser who is like definitely the hero of the song, Deacon Blues. One of my very favorites, Tilly Dan. When I was a kid, they used to play that song a lot on rock radio. And to me, that feels like a song that doesn't still get played on Q107, which is our big rock station in Toronto. I mean, it's seven minutes long. It has a lot of saxophone on it. Yeah, it's a jazz song. But when I was a kid, they always had these sort of like countdowns, like a weekend, like on Labor Day weekend, they would have the countdown of the one... It was because they were Q107, so it was the 1007 top rock song weekend. And Deacon Blues was surprisingly right up towards the top. It was like number 32 or something most of the time when I was a kid. Yeah, it, it was it, properly released as a single. And it was a popular song on rock radio when rock radio was a little uh, less narrow in terms of the kinds of music that they would play. Certain Steely Dan songs will always be on classic rock stations. But the only radio stations that I ever hear Deacon Blues on now are on the jazz station. Toronto has a has a jazz station. We do. It's not the most exciting jazz station, but they have a lot of good shows. And they've wisely started incorporating Steely Dan into the rotation. Like you hear uh, several Steely Dan songs like get thrown in now. That might have to do with the aging boomers. It's also just kind of a good way to pull people in. Yeah, because because when the jazz station started, it was you know your usual sort of jazz and what is automatically recognized as jazz. But there was a beautiful afternoon where my wife and I went to uh, Niagara Falls or some. We went out to the west of the province, like to Stratford or something. And on our way home, uh, they played the Nightfly 
on the radio and we were going over a big, huge bridge and it sounded so great in the car. And it was like, they should play more Steely Dan on the jazz station was how I felt. Yeah. I mean, I imagine it's kind of like the, you know, if, if you're a jazz DJ, that's like a bit of sugar to put to, you know, throw in the mix. And if you're a jazz DJ, uh, you can put Deacon Blues on and that buys you seven minutes to go to the bathroom or go have a cigarette. <laughs> Yeah, Deacon Blues is a great one. Deacon Blues, um, yeah, that it, the, the lyrics of that one, like they have such a wonderful specificity. It's about, I mean, it's I think out of all of their songs, it's the one that's most about the idea of like the heroic loser, you know, the noble loser, and having loserdom being a thing that is an aspirational state. Like the whole song is about, you know, wanting to be this guy to you know, to l- learn to work the saxophone to be like this uh this loser musician who's kind of going <laughs> what is the line it's like uh like the these suburban streets like something like a snake this oh, suburban streets I, I i glide like a viper through the suburban streets make love to these women languid and bittersweet yes it's yeah. very heroic it, about being a failure right it also it also makes like having sex with these women sound like <laughs> it, it, it's it's both glamorous but so sad yeah um like that's the fan the fantasy isn't like you know the more wild or you know it's it's the more like upsetting version of it where you're just like where you're clearly like these these women are, are married yeah but it's like a heroic downfall you know like the ideal is to sort of flame out i always thought it was perhaps from the perspective of a musician who realized that he would never be a great musician Oh yeah. That's what I always detected from it. It's very confessional. And, um, uh, I do remember the first time I really listened to it when I was young, it made me cry. I wonder if in a way, like they were writing about a version of this themselves, if they, you know, if Steely Dan did not work out or, or even just the part of them that, that really aspired to, I mean, you think about those guys and like, who are their heroes? I mean, they would much rather be Charlie Parker, but neither of them play saxophones or anything like that. I don't don't think woodwinds are just in any of their skill sets at all, though. uh, Donald plays uh, a melodica on Time Out of Mind in in live shows. One of the wonderful little details in that um, VH1 documentary about classic albums where they did Asia was something that I had never noticed before. And then I listened to it to the, the real song again after watching the show. And for the, um, I guess it's the bridge in Deacon Blues, the that part. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a synthesizer playing along to the horn lines. Very, very faint. Yeah. And it's kind of a, it's kind of a chintzy sounding. Yeah. One. It's, it's, I believe that's the only thing that Donald plays on the song. Like it's the, he's only credited for synthesizer on that song and and lead vocal, but it's so subtle. Like I never ever heard it before until it was pointed out to me, and then I listened to it and I could hear it suddenly. If I recall correctly, I think they had forgotten that it was there too. That's right, because they were playing with the original masters and they were playing around with all the levels, and they just they remembered that that little detail was in there somewhere. One funny story about the making of Deacon Blues. Um, the guy who plays the wonderful sax solo at the end is a musician named Pete Christlieb, and he was the sax player in the Tonight Show band. 
and he was enlisted to play on Deacon Blues. But they were basically looking for the perfect sort of TV show saxophone sound. And many players in the history of recording with Steely Dan would always complain about the endless retakes and the nonstop, you know, several hours long sessions. But Chris Lieb was done in 30 minutes, apparently. He went in and they used take number two. I believe he also played the solo on Just the Way You Are by Billy Joel. That's right. Yeah. I remember, <laughs> I remember like first coming up uh, on a previous episode of this, uh, Rob Sheffield pointed that out. And I'm like, he, he, to, kind of to the point that, you know, there's a lot of people who would tell you like the solo on Deacon Blues like really touched their souls. But would people say that about Just the Way You Are? It's the same sax player doing largely the same part. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm 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 a big fan of just the way you are though. Oh, for sure. But that's a. But those are the, I think those two songs. They're both they both came out in 1977. It's a, a big year for uh, Pete Chrislieb. Mm-hmm. And uh, FM uh, would be he's also on that one as well. But before we move on from Deacon Blues, um, I want to talk a little bit more with you. I know this is your show, Matthew, but um, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about um, this whole thing about epic loserdom. And one of the this things the that I love about as, as we talk about Deacon Blues, this is the time to talk yeah, about Epic Loser. Before, because this is the most epic of all their Epic Loser songs. But um, Deacon Blues, like the really beautiful part for me is the idea of they got a name for the winners in the world. I want a name when I lose. And they call Alabama the Crimson Tide, call me Deacon Blues. That feels to me like the perspective of somebody who was always on the outside looking in, always seeing the dominant culture and what is expected when you're one of the, the anointed people that gets to do whatever they like, like the football stars. And then the people who are in the stands who, you know, the girl that they love is in love with the quarterback, that kind of perspective. I want a name when I lose. And I wanted to share with you a, a beautiful little note that I got from a Toronto downtown counselor who I'm friends with on Twitter. His name is Gord Perks and he's a huge Steely Dan fan. And we totally Dan pilled him in episode oh, one because yes. he loves Steely Dan and he always has. But he told me that ever since Dan pilled episode one, that's all he's been listening to is Steely Dan. And he okayed me to quote him for this episode. And I really wanted to get your thoughts on this lovely thing that he wrote about Steely Dan. He said, I've been thinking, if art holds up a mirror, most pop songs hold up a mirror of what the dominant culture wants us to believe about ourselves. Steely Dan holds up a mirror that shows how the dominant culture lies about us. We are, by the dominant culture's rules, losers, outcasts, and deviants. Steely Dan's genius is that they put a shiny gloss on these stories. Two things about this. By having it beautifully rendered gloss, they bestow upon losers some legitimacy and with great empathy. And also, the gloss hides musical challenges, which are a way of inviting listeners further in. That's very insightful. I feel like, like that's getting right to the heart of it. And I think that that's one of the reasons why I loved Steely Dan so much, because, you know, I was never the high school quarterback. And I was never the big man on campus, 
And most music is made for the big man on campus. You know what I mean? Steely Dan, and, you know, to a certain extent, I always liked Elvis Costello, too, when I was younger. And, you know, these were the sort of the anthems for the people who are on the outside looking in. Yeah, and I feel like, you know, Deacon Blues kind of shows you, like, what is the... So, okay, if you're on the outside, you know, what is your best option? Your best option is being cool. Mm -hmm. And so the whole song of that is just like just trying to get that cool to be that outsider cool guy. And that there's a coolness even in uh, obliterating yourself too, you know, which I guess, you know, is partly the reason why maybe drug problems took over Walter Becker. Yeah. I mean, that line, drink malt whiskey all night long and drive and die behind the wheel is so evocative. I mean, it, it's it's kind of funny, but it's also just so bleak. It's mm-hmm. just so it's it's just so completely direct in telling you this is the most mundane way I'm going to dis- destroy myself. Yeah, like a Jackson Pollock ending or something. You know? mm. Let's let's move to a different song. Let's do Chain Lightning. chain lightning fan oh yeah it's a good one it's a good one i was listening to katie lied a lot last night um in preparation for this talk because that's the album that i'm least familiar with of steely dan's records it's the one that i have i i mean they're all good songs on the record but that's the one that i don't listen to nearly as much as the other records um yeah i think that one and uh the first album are the ones i listen to the least but i listen to chain lightning quite often uh, chain lightning especially in the recent past like some at some point in the past year or so like chain lightning just really started speaking to me and i i couldn't really tell you why i think there's uh i don't know there's just something to the feel of that one that one's kind of like it's like their most bluesy song mm-hmm. i mean it's, it's a blues song with some jazz inflections to it um it's also it's also the song that's kind of like a little inscrutable. Like it's it seems to be I mean the first few lines are kind of about like having a show and you know having a pretty good turnout to your show, but I'm not really sure like where the song goes from there. It's like a lot of these songs are, you know, they're, they're telling some kind of narrative, but that one I don't know so much. That one's I think it's more about the feel, really. Mhm. Mhm. Would this be a good time to talk about the uh, supposed technological nightmare of making Katie lied? Yes, this is the perfect time. So we were just before we started recording, uh, we, we were talking about this a bit. You have a much better understanding of this than I do, but even kind of not like a expert level. Yeah, I mean, you can you can nerd out uh, to great depths when it comes to Steely Dan, like because of, you know, how, how popular they are with audiophiles and how at the same time, Steely Dan 
uh, encourages that kind of obsessive audiophile fandom because of the way that they even talk about themselves. For instance, the liner notes for the reissues of the Steely Dan back catalog from a few years ago, they wrote these very good uh, little mini essays. The liner notes in Katie Lied allude to a technological disaster during the recording. They were using this new um, noise reduction system that was called DBX. Don't ask me what DBX is in great detail. But what it was supposed to do was to give them a better signal-to-noise ratio than Dolby. And they were using basically technology that they didn't quite understand. And as a result, they wound up having these high-fidelity issues on the record. They basically mangled the masters by layering uh, this noise reduction system on it that basically removed all the the detail from the music. They did... um, wind up having to take it to as good a quality as they could. But the DBX units couldn't decode the mixes on the tape, and they sounded dull and lifeless, in the words of if, Denny if I, Diaz. If I understand it, it seems like it's what the major thing they were trying to reduce was tape hiss. Yeah. But they ended up backfiring, and now this record has more kind of like a surface noise that they really did not want. Um, which I completely understand why this would infuriate them, especially this being the first like real like hardcore studio album they've done, uh, transitioning out of being you know a live band. Mm-hmm. But I think it did some favors to these songs because uh, I think you know Chain Lightning and uh, Black Friday and Bad Sneakers. These are a little bit more rock songs. They're a little bit more. There's more blues on this record than I think the other ones. Mm-hmm. And I think it really gives the record a, a bit of atmosphere and grit that it, it does it some favors. The only song on Katie Lied where I can hear um, that something is off just a little bit is in Everyone's Gone to the Movies. There's a sort of life dull, mm-hmm. dullness to that song that I can tell if you could hear it in its original form, which they swear was as good as quality as Asia. They would swear up and down that it sounded just as good as Asia does when they were recording it. But by the time they were all done mixing it, they botched the masters. I feel like the fact that they've been vocal about the flaws of this record has impacted how a lot of people, including I think both of us, think of the record. Um, And this happens sometimes with artists where they'll just have some kind of real disappointment with the record. And even if it's like an outstanding record, you know, you have to contend with the artist's own like dislike of the record. And, and I don't know it's, it's kind of a bummer because like you, you, I think you'd want to think that the artist likes what they made. Um, but also, you know, if you're kind of confronting it with like, oh, this is a flawed thing. Let me hear the flaws. It kind of I don't know. I, you say that, but like Katie lied is a lot of people's favorite Steely Dan record. Mm-hmm. Like a, like a pretty substantial number of people. Um, it, it's never been one of my favorites, but um, I don't know. I, th- I think maybe also because it's kind of in the middle of the spectrum. Yeah. Out of the, the, the seven main records, it is literally the middle of the run. It's a transitional record from one phase to another. So, you know, it just doesn't have like the majesty of Royal Scam on one side or the more, you know, the down to earth qualities of the three first the the first three records did it even have a radio hit 
I don't even think they had yeah, a Black Friday Black and Friday, Bad Sneakers but, were the hits. Okay. Bad Sneakers is such a good song. That's a total... Um, Bad Sneakers, I think, was like the main uh, radio song. Black Friday uh, is... That's definitely the one they, they play live all the time. That's a, like a major staple of their show. But they don't really play a lot of songs from this record. And it's one of... It's notable that, you know, they've played through most of the records in their discography, but not this one. Like this one, the, the the records they don't play live are, are this one, uh, "Can't Buy a Thrill" and uh, "Pretzel Logic." Oh, really? Just because they're because they have such, um, they don't really sound of a piece. Those records, maybe. I mean, Katie I think Lied it's because they just don't like some of the songs on it, and yeah. they just don't feel like playing them. Yeah, um, I you know I could actually see Fagan down the line caving and doing Katie Lied in full. I could see that happening. I'm surprised they've never done a but smile. I, I like can't see that happening to Pretzel Logic. Pretzel Logic, I think, would be a kind of a pain in the ass, and yeah. would re- require like more players than they have on stage. Yeah, but um, yeah, Katie Lied just sort of. I guess I don't remember whether or not they bitched about the bad quality when they put it out. It's a it's a standard. I mean, it's a position it's, that it's they've taken notes. since. Was it in the original it's liner, in the liner notes, notes? Did they apologize when no, the record on the came record? Out? I, I have them. I have them on vinyl. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, like they, they were very forthcoming. Like they were like basically apologizing to the audience. It's so funny. It's kind of a form of humble bragging, though, isn't it? Like when the, when you're so great uh, with audio technology, and then you say sorry, everybody, even though the average listener wouldn't notice there was anything the matter with it. Yeah, I mean, you listen to like I mean, like we were starting on Chain Lightning, and Chain Lightning sounds just f- amazing. It's so crisp and, and beautiful. Mm-hmm. The lead guitar on that is uh, Rick Derringer, and you know, it's interesting. It's like <laughs> I I have like weird issues with blues. I think um, I think partly because like, well, what are my initial like real exposures to blues? And it would be like. Eric Clapton and things like that, like really tacky white blues. And, and also like the kind of like uh, the band for the Sirent live band. <laughs> so, you know, there's a lot of things where it's like, uh, I wish I could appreciate this more, but it really just sounds like the ending of Sirent live to me. And, you know, chain lightning could definitely be that, but I think there's just, there's, just, I think them adding a little bit of jazz swing to it makes all the difference. Yes, it does have uh, jazz chord changes for a blues song, which is unusual. Yeah, it's it's it, it, it makes you go like, why more people should do that? <laughs> it really works. But it doesn't sound like farting around, which is what a lot of blues rock always sounds like to me. Is the sort of there's always a uh, sort of an air of condescension to the blues that you know you hear from people like Eric Clapton. Uh, I don't. I didn't get that yeah. from Steely Dan. Yeah, I think that that element of uh, jazz to them both loosened it up and also put a bit of focus on it and like that attention to having that. I think like the the major interesting chord changes in the keyboard part. We're seeing some video of Donald showing how to play that. It's on on YouTube. Um, There's also a few really good live versions of Chain Lightning that you can find on streaming. Mm -hmm. There's one. Uh, that's that's very piano focused. That sounds really great. Um, Chain Lightning also probably the most prominent Steely Dan song I've never seen live as kind of part of 
you know, of what I just said, that it's one of the records they don't play, but they used to play Chain Lightning all the time, but not in any of the time, not, not since uh, I started seeing them a few years ago. You know, I, I didn't know this, but when I was reading up on Katie Lied last night, I had no idea. One of my heroes uh, is the Wrecking Crew drummer, Hal Blaine, who plays on, you know, the Beach Boys. and He's on Any World. Yeah, but he's on Any World at the end. And I had no idea that Hal Blaine and Steely Dan worked together. I had yeah. new respect for yeah, that he's, song. Yeah, he's just on that song. The rest of that record is uh, Jeff Porcaro. But yeah, I mean, what a what a... What a coup to have Hal Blaine on your record. Mm. Do you have any feeling for Black Friday? Yeah, it's a great song. Black Friday, um, that one, I think that one kind of uh, takes that same kind of uh, blues feel, but brings it to something a little darker, I think. That, that one always has, there's something sinister about Black Friday. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, the, one of the things about Katie Lied is that, you know, I think of it as their sort of transition point from being a rock band to being a jazz band. And for me, with very few exceptions, the there's jazz peppered throughout Katie lied. It never, except for your gold teeth too. Does jazz really take over a song? Like it's mostly rock with some jazz chords or blues with jazz chords. And, and black Friday also has that. Yeah. I also like that. It's a song about like someone just kind of a, 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 as they say, like it's a crooked speculator. Mm -hmm. Uh, and he just kind of makes a fortune and this heads off to Australia. (laughs) I remember uh, reading that they 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 mentioned in the song uh, a place called Muswell Brook, yeah, which which they chose, you know, just by you know it, the entire reason it's in Australia was they found that that name and they liked it; it fit the meter, and you know, I, I like I like that. I, I like just choosing something because it's purely musical, and then just kind of like r- running with the story. Well, I guess we're going to talk about Josie, but. They have the battle apple in that song. Oh, what's up on Josie now? Uh, like, yeah, the the yeah, the, that's a fictional weapon that they made up. Just, just, I mean, I feel like it's brilliant because, like, you know, you kind of, I have, I have a pretty clear idea of what the battle apple looks like. Is it like, um, like, um, a one of those spheres on a chain you know those kind of weapons i can i can't remember the name of the weapon like that <laughs> yeah like a, yeah but I, I don't think it's like on a chain i think it's just kind of like a baseball that has like knives in it <laughs> yeah i thought a battle apple was a, gr- a grenade or something but the other thing is that for years i just didn't even know what they were saying <laughs> it didn't bother me that i didn't know exactly every word that they were saying in the lyrics and then when i was you know becoming a danologist and digging up on these things it was like battle apple that's what he's saying. What's a battle apple? Oh, it's nothing. It's just yeah. they use that word 
they used those two words because they were so musical and they they painted a picture. A battle apple sounds like a projectile. I remember them saying something to the effect of like they didn't, you know, they they pr- prefer to use things in the world, but every once in a while they would just have that flight of fancy that come up with the battle apple or um what do you call it? Uh, the custard yeah. dome obviously yeah. just uh, just like a fictional thing that's just so evocative because you know you just have like these this, this this evocative word that just makes you think of like what could that be and you know it, it's really playing on the strengths of music where you can just have that thing that kind of sparks your imagination but doesn't really need to be explicated in any way I always thought um, in time out of mind that the mystical sphere was direct from Laos not Lhasa because <laughs> I think they make heroin in Laos too. So I just assumed that it was um, Laos, but it's Lhasa. Yeah. Like Lhasa, you know? Yeah. But I, I was like, I guess yeah, Laos yeah, yeah, makes heroin. It. You know, I know the songs about heroin. Yeah. So Josie is an interesting one. Uh, I love that. Song it took too. me a while to really kind of click to that one, but especially the getting into the, the idea of what that song's about, where it's about like this kind of like, like like local sex goddess who is coming back and everyone's rejoicing. There's something really eerie about the song because it sounds like there's some kind of crazy um, sacrifice, a, a crazy sacrificial ritual going on or something. Exactly. It has that kind of like implication of a cultish activity. Yeah. It's just, but in suburbia, it, to me, it sounds like a local girl coming home, but there's this like vaguely evil, sex ritual going on which is maybe right. their view of uh you know the dark side of uh, the burbs or something right and also like i mean does like how much does josie know about all this is josie aware of all this excitement is josie aware of what's in for her you know is she the thing that the song implies or is the song like imagining her to be this thing and they're just willing it to be think of Josie and Peg as being sisters, you know, in a way. Because yeah. Peg is also a song that I know we were going back on Peg a bit, but there was something I forgot to mention when in Dan Pilled Part One when we were talking about Peg. The idea that she's posing for some photo shoot which might be a cheesecake uh photo shoot and might be pornography. We don't quite know. Um, oh, I mean, do, I mean, have you noticed like that kind of buried vocal that's kind of over the bridge? Well, where it's says you can hear it where it's it's a woman saying like something to the effect of no, I don't want to do this. No, I didn't know that. Yeah. 
Once you hear that, you never unhear it. Yeah, like that song really implies that this woman is uh, kind of being pushed and like maybe it starts off as a uh, as a pinup shoot, but it kind of, you know, moves into a different kind of shoot altogether. But once I started to figure out that that was what it was about, that changed the meaning of Peg, it will come back to you. Hmm, good point. I hadn't thought of that line in that way. Yeah, it, it was sort of just to add to the sort of the because that song is so shiny and sunny and fun, but there's a darkness to it. And if you listen to it that way, when you smile for the camera, I know I'll love I, I know I'll love you better. Peg, it will come back to you. Oh, when the shutter. Falls. So, yeah, I mean, if, if we kind of like think of these two songs as being these parallels, you know, uh, they, it begins and ends the second side of the record. But they're both, you know, can be interpreted as about these women who are being acted upon in ways, you know, that are they're being like sexualized and idealized and then also defiled by by this sort of mysterious men for the delication of these men. Let's move along to FM. You know, what's interesting about FM is um, I believe that it was the movie that was the inspiration for WKRP. Oh, yeah, I think that's I think I've read that as well. And FM is one of these movies where they uh, in the wake of Saturday Night Fever, all these um, studios were trying to figure out how to have a giant hit soundtrack and movie at the same time. Grease was another successful example of that. Um, multi, you know, multi um, media uh, domination of the market. Because I think Saturday Night Fever might still be one of the most Saturday Night Fever might still be one of the best selling records of all time. Even yeah, now. it's way up there. And as is Greece Greece as Greece. well. Yeah, they're 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 definitely two of the biggest blockbusters. John Travolta, so, John Travolta, excellence. 
Now, FM wasn't a big hit at all. It was, uh, they sort of released it in the, I guess, the fall of 1978. And the soundtrack was everywhere in delete bins for years. Like you could always find used copies of FM and, or whole uh, piles of the FM soundtrack. Cause I guess they, they made way too many of them expecting it to be a big hit, but it had, I can't remember all the people on the record, but they were all like the hit parade of FM radio at the time, which of course was also you, the Beola period who, too. <laughs> do you know who sings backup on FM? Yes, I do. It's Glenn Fry and Timothy B. Schmidt. Oh, uh, yeah. Who would become an eagle? I, I think maybe he, it was right when he became an eagle. But Timothy B. Schmidt also sings on uh, previous Steely Dan records. That's right. Uh, which ones were he on? I think he's on at least the thing we were going to talk about. But yeah, uh, Timothy B. Schmidt had, had kind of a, a long relationship with them. Like he was on uh, a bunch of songs that are on uh, Pretzel Logic. That's right, because he has a very angelic voice. So he he fit right in with the female chorus. Yeah. Yeah, or to put a sort of male voice in amongst the female voices, but to still maintain a sort of angelic sound. Yeah. So this is another uh, Pete Chrislieb song. FM is great. Yeah. That's a song that I didn't find out about until much later, because I knew Steely Dan just from their albums, and FM was a non-album track. There are only only about three or four, yeah. I only heard um, Welcome to the Western World like two weeks ago. I had never heard that before. <laughs> yeah, it's really just the two extra songs. And then there's the Lost song. Uh, the Was it the something arrangement? The second arrangement? The second arrangement. Yeah. Yeah, I did uh, find all the Gaucho demos on YouTube. I got very excited. Did you hear the Time Out of Mind demo? That's just piano and vocal. I think I also drums. Think I, have. I don't think I have. That one's great. There's there's two demos that you can find on YouTube that I love. It's the the one for Black Cow and the one for Time Out of Mind, which are, are two of like the God tier songs for me. Probably, like, yeah. you know, those those are two of my four top Steely Dan songs. But yeah, the, the this hearing those songs reduced down just to hearing like Donald's piano parts, like him composing those really interesting piano parts. Uh, it, it's just great to hear. Back to FM. Um, that was, I think, a chart hit. I think it did make the charts. Yeah, it did okay. It's it, it's like a modest hit, but it's a it's a really really catchy song. It's so good, and it's got those beautiful string sections. It's got like some major 
orchestration, like suddenly a little uh, symphonic section shows up. It's very rare. We will get to this. Uh, we'll, we'll get to through to through with buzz in a minute, but it's like, those are two of the only songs they have that have strings on them. Mm-hmm. Like it's, it's really very rare. And it, it makes sense that like you would have like this kind of string arrangement on this like movie song. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I like the I like the idea of FM too about just kind of observing girls being excited about songs on the radio. It's a song about music. It's a song about people mm-hmm. responding to music. It's not necessarily a, it's. I mean, there's some kind of like you know like lasciviousness about the girls they're talking about, but mm-hmm. it's not. I don't think it's a particularly dark song. And it's in that little uh, world of. Um that funny music, uh, that funny little subgenre in the seventies where, where people would have songs about the radio experience, like radio, radio spirit of the radio by rush. You turn me on. I'm a radio by Joni Mitchell and no static at all by FM or by steel, no static at all by steely Dan. Just these songs that try to sort of have a radio metaphor in the middle of a pop song that you're hearing on the radio. There is like some condescension about the music that you can kind of expect from them, you know, yeah. give her some funked up music. She treats you nice. Yeah. Feed her some <laughs> hungry, hungry reggae. She'll love you twice. The girls <laughs> don't seem to care tonight. As long as the mood is right. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's good wisdom. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, oh, you know what my favorite favorite line in that song is where it says uh, nothing but blues and Elvis and somebody else's favorite song. Yeah. Yeah. There's they're They're maintaining their above all this position while crafting something that sounds wonderful in a car while you're driving along, listening to the radio. So let's talk about through with buzz. That's uh, one of the first Steely Dan songs I really connected with. I mentioned this on, on your show. Uh, through with buzz is, is such an outlier in their catalog because it's mm-hmm. the most orchestral one. The, it has like this orchestration by uh, Jimmy Haskell. Um, it is about, it's a minute and a half long. Yeah. It has a really great momentum to it. And it's kind of a short story about, you know, a guy who's a drug dealer just kind of like run like his girlfriend runs off with this drug dealer. And he's like, that's it. I'm through with Buzz. And like, you know, there's kind of two ways to take that line, like Buzz being the guy. But he's also maybe through with the buzz of the drugs. Maybe there's there's a few lines in that song that can that are definitely taken meant to be taken like two different ways. And there are several Steely Dan songs that you can read one way and might be about something else. Because I always thought Through With Buzz was about somebody trying to kick drugs. Mm. That's what I detected from that song. Yeah. He's like, you know, he takes all my money. 
He's not very funny. Well, I mean, the, I guess the part he I focus on my girl. I, yeah, I focus on the bridge part because I remember when he stole my girl, drug her all around the world. There's there's one of those lines. You know, I'm cool. Yes, I feel all right, except that when I'm in my room and it's late at night. Mm-hmm. Then there's that line, like maybe he's a fairy, which I think, you know, I think is meant to be taken as like he's a gay man. But I feel like that's wishful thinking if he's if he stole his girl. Yeah, <laughs> I know. It's again from the perspective of somebody who lost. And is now, uh, you know, showing his, uh, you know, when people are, are, are through with it, I'm over you, but you can tell that I'm not over you kind of like it's the, uh, yeah, but that song I always detected to have double meaning. Another one was, was off Katie lied, which was Dr. Wu, mm-hmm. which Fagan has actually described as actually as a love triangle between a man, a woman, and heroin. And if you read the lyrics that way, it's quite clear. But when I was naive, I listened to the song and I thought it was about somebody actually uh, going to see a, uh, an Eastern doctor. Well, if I recall correctly, Dr. Wu is a real person, which complicates it. <laughs> mm-hmm. I think I think it's kind of a few different things. I, I think your interpretation is correct, but it's also, uh, I think Dr. Wu, if I, if I remember this correctly, and like, this is a terrible time to just kind of be guessing at something or trying to have a halfway memory being related. But I think it was someone who actually did help Walter and, you know, they just wrote him into the song. Yeah. And, but I know, think Fagan recently confirm that it's actually about heroin <laughs> yeah oh no it's it, i think there's 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 no two ways about it that's about heroin and that's why like dr Wu was helping him in the first place yeah but you know it's it's you know it's it's but it's but not in a, like a dr robert kind of way like dr Wu was like actually like, trying to help him kick yeah but, you know obviously it didn't take for a while i think it took a long long time for walter to get clean and we talked about gaucho on my show the song gaucho but I've also heard a theory that gaucho is also about heroin, that the gaucho is heroin, and the guy yelling at his friend is Fagan yelling at Becker. Interesting. So, yeah, so the, that, that being like the subtext of gaucho, which is funny because I feel like usually the subtext of a song would be that it's about two gay guys, but that's actually the text of the song. Yeah, that's the text of the song, but I, but how does it start? Um, just when I think, boy, you can't miss, you are golden, then you do this. Yes. Like, um, the, you know, because Becker had a um, a terrible thing happen where his girlfriend overdosed in Becker's apartment. And that was sort of just where it was becoming very clear that the drug problem in Becker's life was starting to consume his life. And I had heard a theory that that Gaucho is actually a song that Becker wrote to sort of tell, sorry, that Gaucho is a song that Fagan wrote to basically tell Becker to smarten up. My understanding but, is that like that's mostly a Becker song. Like, the, oh, the, the, well, the, then maybe he's. I mean, to the point that, on himself, to the point that when they were performing it live, like Walter would sing it.
Wow. Did Walter ever sing very much when you went to see Steely Dan? He would sing Daddy Don't Live in That New York City No More. And I think I saw him do Gaucho once. Um, all the other times I've seen Gaucho, it was, it was Donald because um, Walter had passed away. Yeah. Um, yeah. And he he would do um, bef- before my time, before my time of seeing them, like you, on like the, the there's that one Steely Dan live record where he sings one of his solo songs, Book of Liars, which is quite mm-hmm. good. But yeah, he generally didn't sing very much. I mean, and his voice is like fine, but I think he just didn't like singing. Yeah. They just didn't like um, being in public. I mean, it's uh, Steely Dan has now turned into a live band, but you know, one of the things that I loved about them, they had a, a, a similarity to the Beatles, I suppose, that they just stopped becoming a live band and just became studio hermits. Yeah. I mean, a lot of the reason they, they started playing shows again and reuniting was because uh, Donald's girlfriend and then wife, uh, Libby, whose last name is escaping me, um, basically she was running some kind of like cabaret kind of show and basically like just nudged Donald into just doing the thing with Walter and they just got the bug again. They just really enjoyed playing. And I think, you know, over time, I think especially Donald really took to enjoying playing live shows. I mean, that's mostly what he does now. And, you know, he, you know, he has like the Steely Dan band, which is like really outstanding, just like amazing players, like they play live with one of the best drummers I've ever seen in my life, Keith Carlock. Uh, he's been the drummer of Steely Dan for quite a long time, and he plays on the last record they made, mm-hmm. Everything Must Go. But he's also on some of like Donald's solo records that are more recent. Um, but yeah, I mean, they're really just, I mean, I really strongly recommend that anyone who likes Steely Dan. They've come through Toronto a few times and I foolishly didn't go because I didn't know whether or not it would be a good show, but apparently. Oh yeah, it's outstanding. Wonderful. And especially, you know, because the, they're, they're also play a really crowd pleasing show now. I think when they first were playing live, it took them a while to kind of figure out like, well, what songs worked and which ones didn't because a lot of the songs they were playing were never played. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But, you know, like now they have definitely have songs where it's like, you know, I mean, and, and it shapes it, the way I think of a lot of the songs because, you know, the ones that are kind of like set list staples, I, I kind of interpret as being like the more important songs in a way. Mm-hmm. So like Showbiz Kids is played pretty frequently. Black Friday pretty much all the time. You know, FM, I've only seen FM once and I was unfortunately like really out of it when I saw it. So it almost didn't count. Did they end the show with my old school? My old school usually ends the main set and reeling in the years is typically the last song or and sometimes pretzel logic is the last song after reeling in the years. Cool. Um, Let's talk about Pretzel Logic. Pretzel Logic yeah. is a really good one. That's that's kind of a, a, a bluesy one that's on the album Pretzel Logic, obviously. Um, and it's kind of <laughs> it's like a time travel song. It's mm-hmm. kind of like using time travel as a joke mm-hmm. about like, you know, imagining if you, you know to go back in time and people just being like, what the hell's wrong with you? What, what is this? Cl- what are these clothes you're wearing? Where, where'd you get those shoes? On the platform 
The man gave me the news. He said, you must be joking, son. Where did you get those shoes? Why do you want to tour the Southland in a traveling minstrel show? Yes, what is that about? <laughs> Why is that your fantasy? <laughs> I be well, I of course when I had an iPod, I loaded it up with uh, lots of Steely Dan. Except I didn't put whole records on because there were certain songs that I just didn't want to hear um, too often. Like I'm not a huge fan, for instance, of uh, East St. Louis Toodaloo. They're it's the Wellington. only cover on one of their albums. I know, but it's just sort of like because it's got like um, maybe maybe I'll listen to it again. But I remember it it it, w- it got close to what people complain about Steely Dan for, but the sort of like purposefully irritating. Uh, isn't it like synthesizer and traditional instruments? Yes, it, it is. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a, a shorty. It's not very long being done in this kind of irreverent way. Yeah, like almost comedy way. It's not very long, but it just doesn't really feel like anything else on the record. It sort of feels like an indulgence on their part. So, like, if I put um, Pretzel Logic on my iPod, it wouldn't be that song. I'd put everything else on. But the two songs that I became really, really obsessed with uh, from the iPod experience was the Boston Rag and Pretzel Logic. I think those are two heavy, heavy songs. I have never met Napoleon, but I plan to find the time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think also, uh, I mean, I love that part in the song where it's just the, the kind of the, it's part of the, it's like basically the punchline of the song, but also like the big dramatic part where it's like, I stepped up to the platform. The man gave me the news. He said, you must be joking, son. Where did you get those shoes? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, when they do that live, it's it's a little bit more dramatic and the, the girls sing it, the, the Danettes. And there's other versions where you can hear like uh, Michael McDonald singing that part. Like I, I, I've seen Michael McDonald perform that song with them. I say the term pretzel logic a lot, and I blame Steely Dan for that. <laughs> I think it's such a great term. Um, well, give me a context for that. <laughs> pretzel logic. I always think of pretzel logic as very, very twisted and overly elaborate uh, reasoning to get to where you're going. That it's all it's a, it's a good up. phrase for a time travel song. Definitely, because it's like um, time bending on itself. I also yeah. think it's very profound. Um, the the final lyrics of that song. I've seen them on the TV, the movie show. They say those times are changing, but I just don't know. Those things are gone forever. Over a long time ago. Oh yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. very uh, very. Uh, there's a finality to the ending of that song, like a, a reckoning with uh, those days are gone forever. Right. And yeah, and it kind of, yeah. So the idea of the, you know, the time travel, not a good idea, actually, uh, that the past is the past. And, you know, there, there's a pavement line I always like a lot. That's like time is a one way track and I am not going back, <laughs> you know, but Steely Dan's uh, whole thing is 
was being woefully behind everybody else, right? Like being resolutely in favor of culture that was gone over a long yeah. time ago. Yeah, and that's and that's part of like the romanticism of them. It's part of the loserdom of them because like they don't side with the winners of things. It's all the stuff that's in the past. It's all the stuff that's bygone. It's just, you know the stuff that lost the cultural battles. Yeah, which you know you could sometimes describe as um, what is that 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 sort of mental, not mental is not the word I'm looking for, but that golden age thinking mistake that a lot of people make. You know that the good old days. I should have been in that other time. Meanwhile, you're living in a time that other people are going to wish they lived in. Well, let's talk about a song about the past. Let's do one of the biggest hits, Reeling in the Years. Your everlasting summer, you can see it fading fast. So you grab a piece of something that you think is going to last. Well, you wouldn't even know a diamond if you held it in your hand. The things you think are precious, I can't understand. Are you reeling in the years, stowing away the time? Are you gathering up the tears? Have you had enough of mine? Are you reeling in the years, stowing away the time? Are you gathering up the tears? Yes, That's, that is still on the radio. I love reeling in the years. Reeling in the Years sounds like a song that Wes Anderson hasn't used yet in a movie, but he should. <laughs> right. I mean, he, he doesn't really do the rock stuff anymore, but maybe he, he should he should circle back to it. That, that's a little more Rushmore vibe for him. Yeah, it is a bit of a Rushmore vibe, but it's, uh, I'm, of course, thinking of the main piano sections, like the main verses. Dun, 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 dun. Yeah. It's like total montage from a Wes Anderson movie waiting to happen. Yeah, it's it, it, the plot of it feels like it could be one of his movies. Yeah. Um, or, yeah, it's the guy, he's breaking with a girl in the college, and he's he's kind of bitter, you know. I, there, there's, there's so many great bitter lines in that song. Yeah, the things you, you think are useful. What is it? You've been telling me you're a genius since you were 17, and all the time I've known you, I still don't know what you mean. The weekend <laughs> at the college didn't work out like you planned. The things that pass for knowledge, I can't understand. And that's that's a song written by who a guy who's like twenty three. Yeah, he it's is so- the youngest old fogey, and he just so fully embodies it. I mean, because this one I think is very much a Donald like lyric. I mean, they they all wrote them together, but there's some songs that kind of really announce themselves as being more one than the other. And this is definitely one that's like based on their own lived experiences at school. It's very Dylan esque as well i think oh good point yeah i think that probably was something that they were reckoning with in some way i have no idea how they feel about bob dylan yeah i have no idea but you wouldn't know a diamond if you held it in your hand like that's very dylan-esque the things you think are precious i can't understand I mean, I really, I mean, I I love those lines because I I, I relate to them a lot. Like, I think it's, it's something anyone can relate to is of not understanding someone else's uh, values. And it's a great kiss off song. It's like a song. It's a breakup letter almost. Yeah. Are you reeling in the years? Don't away the time. Are you gathering up the tears? Have you had enough of mine? And it really just implies that like this, he doesn't really mean that much to this woman. 
And he's really probably putting more importance on this than he than he would even admit. Because he's trying to be the guy who's too cool here, but it sounds like he's the one who's kind of kind of the fool on it. This sounds very autobiographical of the boys at Bard College. You know, a guy getting get dumped by his girlfriend um, at school. There's a few early Steely Dan songs that sound like they were written while they were students and, you know, getting revenge on various teachers and various girlfriends and various yeah. jerks that got in their way. Yeah, I mean, Reeling in the Gears and My Old School, I think, are the two big ones. And they're also just two of the most popular Steely Dan songs or two of the ones that are just like really enduring rock and roll songs in a, in a way that, you know, a lot of the, even their other more rock songs don't really rock in quite the same way. Like, I think mm. they're definitely the most accessible songs. There's a wonderful clip on, I guess, on Don Kirshner's rock concert of Steely Dan performing really in the years which was a revelation for me in the early days of YouTube because I had never seen visually what Steely Dan looked like. Mm. Sunglasses. <laughs> but like, I didn't know for instance that like, you know, they had uh, Jeff Baxter <laughs> up there with his incredible walrus mustache. And, uh, and I, and I had never really seen the other guy who was there their sort of co-lead singer what i'm blanking on his name uh palmer yeah yeah i didn't know what he looked like david palmer i didn't know what david palmer even looked like i had heard his voice on can't buy a thrill but i'd never seen him performing with the band there's another video that kind of comes and goes on youtube of uh the osmonds performing on their show oh really yeah it's fascinating (laughs) Because they, re- they really square it up. But, it's, you know, it's such a good song that it just kind of, I mean, you, I feel like you could do Reel in the Ears any which way. And it's always going to sound good because, like, this, the, the core melodies of that song are just so incredibly appealing. Mm-hmm. I mean, the piano part you mentioned before, like the lead guitar parts, the chorus. It's, I mean, I've always really liked the verse melody because it kind of tumbles out in kind of an interesting meter. Mm-hmm. It's it's not the easiest thing to sing. No, it's almost um, it's very uh, it's on a vanguard in terms of uh, jamming as many words as possible into a, a small little space. Like he's speed talking. Hmm. Let's talk about another song from uh, "Can't Buy a Thrill," a song that I know uh, you have a interest in. It's only a fool would say that. Ah. Uh. Become one of salads and sun. Only a fool would say that. A boy with a plan, a natural man, wearing a white Stetson hat. On hand that gun be gone, there's no one to fire upon. If he's holding it high, he's telling a lie. I heard it. You talking about a world where all is free. It just couldn't be, and only a fool would say that. The man in the street. Which on the record it says a message in cha cha. Oh yeah. (laughs) 
Yeah, I, each of those songs kind of has a lot. Like the the line, the thing next to "Real in the Years" it says, uh, "How's how's my little girl?" One of the things that I really like about the very early Steely Dan was the strong influence on Latin culture and New York and music and like you know Santana to a certain extent and just sort of the 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 Puerto Rican vibes that uh, Can't Buy a Thrill has sometimes and that song sure has it because it is it a cha cha yes I it's a cha cha I couldn't quite remember but it's got it's it's really peppy it's it's um, and uh, it's such a funny song as well. It's another kiss off song, I think. But I remember yeah, they, they one were, night they were, just, they were like uh, really pissy young men. But I remember one night I was uh, visiting a girlfriend who lived in Ottawa, and we went to uh, a bar where they had a really good DJ who was playing, and she was talking to me. But I started tuning out of what she was saying because only a fool would say that came on, and I hadn't heard it in a long time. And it just got me. And she eventually realized that I was uh, distracted. But it just sounded so great in amongst uh, various uh, Latin music that the guy was playing. Like he was playing all kinds of uh, Latin disco. And then he threw Only a Fool Would Say That on. And it's such a funny, quick little song. And it has that strange ending with that giggling man. And I I like the chorus a lot in it. Uh, It says, I. I heard it was you talking about a world where all is free. It just couldn't be. And only a fool would say that. It's like that kind of like reflexive cynicism. Like it's just <laughs> like the, the, that kind of like utopian thinking is just laughable from a Steely Dan perspective. Yeah. Cause like they, they, uh, they have so much uh, s- sarcasm towards the whole idea of uh, utopia as well a world become one of salads and sun (laughs) (laughs) what a great opening line like you know what a common word that you just do not hear in songs like i i literally can't think of another song that mentions salads (laughs) except you don't mix friends you don't make friends with salad that's the only other salad song iconic simpsons number (laughs) here's a theory that i have is he making is that song about John Lennon? Are they making fun of Imagine? I mean, that did not occur to me, but it's it's very plausible. I mean, I, it's definitely reacting to the same kind of idea. Well, it's obviously a song from, you know, guys who were already feeling on the outs of the hippie generation who maybe this is them just face palming hearing, you know, the sort of utopic promises coming from people who uh, have ignored them for too long or something, or the kind of, I guess when Steely Dan were in at Bard, like they were probably watching their contemporaries turning into hippies and, uh, and stoners where, and I guess their version of stoners was to sort of get really high and then read. (laughs) <laughs> or yeah. something like that not to party uh so you know well, I mean, you're talking about guys who idolize junkies instead of stoners yeah that's that's a good point they were very inward and so you know if i would assume that guys like fagan and becker had a very low i would assume that guys like fagan and becker had a very low opinion of uh people talking about a world where all is free it just couldn't be 
you know, keep mo- keep moving along with these kind of breakup songs. Let's do Black Cow, which is one of my favorites. In the corner of my eye, I saw you in Rudy's. You were very high. You were high. It was a crying disgrace. They saw your face on the counter by your keys. Was it? Black Cow, first song on Asia, uh, just an incredible groove to that song. Um, but I love the lyrics of that one. Like the, the opening line is so evocative. In the corner of my eye, I saw you and Rudy's. You were very high. Rudy's, uh, I don't know if you know this, but Rudy's is a bar that's in, like it's just kind of a little bit outside of Times Square. It is still open. It's a dive bar. They're kind of famous wow. for like giving away free hot dogs. Wow. And they are miraculously still open, even through the pandemic. They've been open for so long. I think they probably opened probably for the first time, probably somewhere in the 60s or 70s. Um, so I guess if I ever if I ever wind up in New York, I guess you and I had better go there and have a beer. Yeah, absolutely. I've, yeah, I've, I've just never I've never had the occasion to go there, but I've walked by it many times. Maybe it's just me, but do you detect a little Lou Reed in Black Cow? I, yeah, I think that's correct. I, I feel like at least it's a kind of it's a Lou Reed kind of vibe. It's a very New York City vibe. It's definitely um, on a similar would, wavelength. I, I'm not Reed sure like how much like they would care about Lou Reed. I, I think I, I, my, I would suspect that they would think Lou Reed's a pretty good lyricist. Yeah, but there's a sort of take a walk on the wild side vibe to the to the the world that gets painted in the lyrics for Black Cow. A little bit down to Green Street. There you go, looking so outrageous, and they tell you so. They love that word, outrageous. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, a thing I like about that song is that it's kind of like a it's kind of in a weird Venn diagram with some of the songs we've mentioned before, where the guy who is the protagonist of the song he's not really the cool guy. And he's, you know, breaking up with this girl who's probably cool in the way that the showbiz kids are cool. Mm -hmm. But he's kind of over it. You know, I think he's just trying to get away from this. Well, he sounds like the guy who has to come in and pick up the pieces. Exactly. I think that's one of the things I've always really liked about the song that, you know, he's I think he 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 gets kind of a hero complex out of trying to prop up this girl, but you know I think it's you know two things have happened. Like the the thrill of hooking up with her is gone, and you know he also doesn't get the buzz of being a hero of, of you know helping her out or anything like that. So it's just like okay, let, let's you know time to cut and run. Drink your big black cow. 
And what is a black cow? It's like a it's like a, a ice cream soda. So it's a non-alcoholic drink because I thought mm-hmm. a black cow was a yeah, like they, drink. They, they, they've gone to like one of the diners uh, around there. Aha! Uh-huh. So he's yes. So he's they've ordered. Uh, he's had a, he's got a coffee and she got a black cow or something. Right, like a, like a, you know the implication being it's a child's drink. Yeah. That's interesting because when I was younger, I always thought of a black cow as being uh, alcohol. That they were, that he was uh, telling her what was what in a bar. But then I learned no, no, that a black a, cow was actually like yeah. more like a kid's drink, and that yeah, fact, yeah, it's, it's like it's it's like a like like a I think it's like a chocolate soda with vanilla ice cream. So you know, it's like taking the kid out for <laughs> taking the uh, the young girl that you're mixed up with to a soda shop to dump her. Right, exactly, and I, I feel like it's it's such a subtle way of highlighting the eight, like the implied age difference between these two people, like because this guy is probably in his thirties and she's probably like nineteen or twenty. Yeah, although they were already planning ahead, right? They were, he was probably twenty five and she was nineteen, but in his mind he felt forty, and soon he would right. be forty. <laughs> right. I mean, one way or another, it's just like he is feeling he's he's being patronizing, you know. And, you know, the one record later is Hey 19, which is kind of approaching the same kind of thing, but from an even more kind of like, oh, I'm so bored by these young girls thing, which is so funny because like the the thought is never like, well, okay, how about these women my own age or a bit older? Like, nope, nope. You got to keep boring myself with these young girls. Which I think is a very, I, guys. I mean, I feel like that's, oh, that's a perennial attitude, but I feel it's like an especially 70s attitude, um, especially when you kind of look at like how it was just kind of like super commonplace for, you know, rock stars to be dating like literal teenagers. That was just the norm. Yeah. yeah. Also, I want to say one other thing about Black Cow is how wonderful the women singers are on that song. Oh, outrageously good. I didn't actually didn't even mean to say outrageous because it's in the song. <laughs> Let's kind of wrap it up on uh, a song from the Royal Scam. Okay. We, we have not talked about the Royal Scam at all. Let's no. talk about Don't Take Me Alive. Oh, what a great song.
What is your vibe on Don't Take Me Alive? Well, it's, again, with Steely Dan being such a cinematic band, that feels to me like a um, uh, a film noir. It feels like somebody who's... Um, I, I was going to say like more of an action movie. There's, it, it feels like there's kind of like some like a... Uh, some rough stuff going up in that song. Yeah. I was thinking film noir actually film noir is not quite what I meant. I meant like, um, Warner brothers, uh, crime film, like don't take me alive. Sounds like something that James Cagney would say at the end of white heat. Yeah, absolutely. Just looking something up, but yeah, it's such a great song and it really does paint, you know, it also is a little bit like, um, crime, crime fiction. I'm a bookkeeper's son. I don't want to shoot no one. Well, I crossed my old man back in Oregon. Don't take me alive. It just sounds like, um, yeah, the, yeah I like that. I like this referencing Oregon like that. <laughs> I know. Um, like I think for a few different ways, like this song, I feel like it's a very Los Angeles kind of song. It is, like, I can't imagine the song not being in Los Angeles. Yeah. It's not so much a film noir. I misspoke, but it's, it's, it sounds like a gangster, um, story it sounds like a man on the on the run who's actually running out of field and i also love the concept of the luckless pedestrian i think about that line a lot just because it's such a it's a perfect example of how um they would use words because they sounded so great together and painted a real picture but you know what does it have to do with anything in the song really the luckless pedestrian. Oh no. I mean, I think it absolutely does. Cause like the implication, the first the few lines are like agents of the law, luckless pedestrian. Like it just implies that this person's just getting mowed yeah. down. It's just like a bystander who's just like, Oh, wrong place, wrong time. You're in my story and my story. People get hurt. <laughs> and that dark moment in where he says, I know what I've done. I know all at once who I am. It's like the guilt. Yeah. I mean, this is this this one is such a movie because it's <laughs> it just really paints a picture of, of a whole there's a whole plot going on here. And it's mostly action sequences. But again, I was saying that Steely Dan and cinema are intertwined. Another thing I thought of after we finished recording was the Caves of Altamira, which is also from um, the Royal Scam. And they have that line about they heard the call and they wrote it on the wall when there wasn't even any Hollywood. Yeah, the Royal Scam is such a, it, 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 that one. I feel like is a very LA ish record. Did I feel like that's like when they first? I feel like there's a real arc to like their LA period, and like that's the one where they're kind of fascinated by the by where they are. And then Asia, I think, is very much them like oh, I miss New York yeah. City. And then Gaucho is them like really leaning into yeah. it again. They they kind of go native on Gaucho a little. The more I heard the more i read about steely dan the more i uh the less i knew about what i thought about steely dan because i always thought that there were first they were a new york band and then they were an la band but they were a new york based band who did most of their recording in la but i was picking up on how some records sound more like new york and some records sound more like la like katie Lyde sounds like new york and can't buy a thrill but mm-hmm. asia 
and Gaucho and the Royal Scam sound like Los Angeles. Oh, and I, I, I do disagree. I think, I think Asia just feels so no, New York City to me. That's yeah. I'm like overwhelming. Asia sounds. Um, it, that's yeah. I, I misspoke there. Asia is a New York record for sure. So we've gone through the songs I had on a list. Is there anything uh, we should get to before we wrap up? Um, one of the songs that I love by Steely Dan is is from Countdown to Ecstasy. Is it? I think Pearl of the Quarter is from Countdown to Ecstasy, isn't it? Yeah, that's that's the second to last song on that one. I love the song Pearl of the Quarter by Steely Dan. It has special meaning for me because I spent uh, two long periods uh, in New Orleans when I was little. And that is a song that transports me right back to uh, New Orleans and childhood. Just from hearing that song a lot when I was little and remembering my memories of New Orleans. But then when I got older, I found out it was about a prostitute. Yeah, <laughs> that's that, that's your pearl, I guess. <laughs> but Steely Dan was uh, was they were such a great band because, as I said in in part one, that I always thought of them as being sort of like a a way of discovering the world of adults was to start to get your head around Steely Dan songs, and they were a band that I thought I understood when I was little, but uh, their songs were so sophisticated and clever that I found out much later that they were about other things entirely. I just pulled out the liner notes to uh, the countdown to ecstasy and they have like little, uh, little lines that like one line describing each of the songs and Pearl, the quarter, definitely the one they put the least into. It just says, Ooh, la la. <laughs> but uh, showbiz kids has the Dan moves to LA and is forced to give an oral report. <laughs> um, one song I feel like we should actually talk about just now. Um, pretty major one that we haven't really mentioned at all is Bodhisattva. Oh, I love that song. And it says here, DS the Bebopper meets Baxter the Skunk beneath the bow tree in this altered blues. <laughs>
And that, I mean, Bata Zappa is like a major live song oh, yeah. for them. Because it's a real, it's like a show-off song for everybody involved. You've heard the wonderful live version that was the B-side for, um, I think, for Hey 19? I, I mean, listen, I mean, I've seen them play that song. I think that's the song I've seen them play the most. I feel like that's that and Reeling in the Years, I think, has been at every single show I've ever seen them the play. The single version is very funny because it starts with a two or three minute long drunken introduction by a teamster. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right, right. Like, that was the guy that they had. I remember listening to an interview where Donald was explaining that. <laughs> and like it was always unclear how much he understood whether Steely Dan was a band or just one of the guys, yeah. which is a common uh, misunderstanding. Like you know, Steely Don. <laughs> <laughs> but so, what is Bodhisattva? It's a it's a workout song, right? Like that's the way it always felt to me. Was it was like a jazz workout. Yeah, and it has that that really great beat to it. It's just like a song. It, you know, it's a it's a, it's a kind of a stew, yeah. right? Because they're you know they're talking about like Eastern spiritualism. You know, it has like some psychedelic flavor to the guitar parts. You know, it's it's a jazz song. It's a blues song. It's just like a lot of things and at the once. Future. There's really... this futuristic synthesizer in it too. Like it's it to me, it felt like this headed into intergalactic territory towards the end. Yeah, there's not, I mean, there's not really any other song quite like Bodhisattva. And I never knew what Bodhisattva, what they were even saying when I was little. I just remember that song was so catchy. Yeah, I mean, why would you know that? (laughs) Well, you think that it's a Mondegreen, like you think that you just can't quite hear what they're saying, but it's actually Eastern spiritualism. What what could it be a Mondegreen of? Like bottle bottle something? something? Yeah, I think between the two shows, we've covered like most of the big ones. I don't think there's any major songs we've we've not discussed, at least in passing. Yeah, well, don't rule out Dan Pilled 3. You never know. <laughs> Dan Pilled 3, I think, goes to a different place, right? So, I mean, as as we said at the end of Dan Pilled 1, if you find yourself Dan Pilled, and, you know, Dan Pilled meaning you have developed an interest in Sealy Dan, you've become a fan as a result of us talking about it, us getting you interested in it. And it, it might not be immediate. It might be something that happens to you months from now. You got to tell us. You have to tell us that you have been Dan Pilled. Tell us both. Um, Matthew, did anybody admit to you that you Dan Pilled them? A few people. Um, I mean, we've seen a few people uh, on Twitter get, reach out to us to kind of mention that they got Dan Pilled through the first episode. I... Um, I got some lovely feedback and somebody also who doesn't like Steely Dan and who we didn't convince him that you got to give them a chance appreciated that we understand why people don't like Steely Dan. Well, you know, as as long as there's an understanding. I think anybody who's obsessed with the boys and the whole concept of vibing with your boys, Steely Dan (laughs) is the band for you. I mean, they're, they've been, they've been living the dream all this time and now you're, you know, better late than never. Well, Jesse, how can people find you? Well, I'm a, I'm Jesse Hawken on Twitter, and I also run Junk Filter Pod, which is the Twitter account for the Junk Filter Podcast. 
and they can find that on like all the podcasts. Yes, we're available places. everywhere. I think uh, I I think not SoundCloud, but everywhere else. What What are some other episodes that people might be interested in that you've done that don't include me? Well, I would recommend for musicologists who love uh, chasing down various strange avenues of music. The first episode that I did was a deep dive into the music of Richard Harris, whose big hit was MacArthur Park and was the great actor. But he put out at least five crazy concept albums, many of which were written for him by the great American songwriter Jimmy Webb. And it's a total rabbit hole. We actually, in the spirit of Dan Pilled, if I could Harris pill any of your FluxPod listeners, then that's the show that I would recommend you listen to is the very first one, which is about Richard Harris's music. Nearly every other show that I've done has been about film, but I like the intersection between music and film. And I love films that have uh, music aspects to them and music that has cinematic aspects to them. Um, And I have a few more uh, music shows in mind on the way. But in terms of an episode that I'm very proud of, that people should listen to um, is the episode that I did about once upon a time in Hollywood with Anna Swanson. That's a really, really good episode where we tackled the common complaints that people have about that movie. If they didn't like it, or if they didn't like what Tarantino was trying to do in the movie, Anna and I are very enthusiastic about the film. So we basically patiently debunk them one by one and put up a case for you to give this movie a chance. If you think that it's actually going to be, um, a movie that would upset you, I don't think it will. Well, there you go. Thank you for coming on, Jesse. Thank you for having me, Matthew. Um, I, I, I think that if people want a Dan Pill 3, they, they got to clamor for it. And then, you know, we'll take it to a third podcast somehow. <laughs> I'm up for it anytime. <laughs> It'll just be like this thread between like multiple shows. And you'll have to come on my show again, too, because that was so much fun, Matthew. I got my head spinning about other music shows that we could do. Yes, absolutely. We'll do it again. Thank you for coming on. We'll do it again? Yes. Get it?